before about the two young fish and the old fish before. It goes like this. There's these two young fish swimming in the ocean, and there's this older fish that swims right by them, and he goes, hey, boys, how's the water? The young fish keep on swimming on a little bit further, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and says, what the heck is water? The point of this little parable is that fish can't comprehend water because it's all that they've ever known. It's their entire lived experience. It's exactly what they're swimming in. We too, like fish, are swimming in waters that contain cultural values and practices and ideas, all of which we may not be aware of until someone asks us, what is the water that you're swimming in? My hope is that by the end of this series that uh, we're starting tonight is that we'll be able to discern the waters that we're swimming in and that we'll be able to make sure that we're living our lives not in conformity to the world, but in conformity to the scriptures, because that's how the Christian is to order their life. As Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So in a sense, this series, I'm Just Living My Truth, is meant to help us contrast the myths of the world with the truth of the gospel, to be able to see those two things clearly and then to be able to contrast them. So what I want to draw out is that whatever you mean by living your truth or being your most authentic self, it is infinitely more empty than ordering your life according to the care and the concern of God's word. To help you become better disciples of the scriptures alone and by consequence to resist the discipleship of the world, to give you eyes to see what waters you're swimming in, and then to be able to then uh, respond rightly by looking to God's word instead. So you can see the topics that we'll be covering for the rest of the semester listed on the back of your handout. Logan also put together some uh, little cards. If you didn't grab one of those on the way in, you can grab one on the way out. You can see it's kind of crazy. The semester is starting to wrap up pretty quickly. We only have, if you don't include Thanksgiving, I think five more weeks of midweek left before the Christmas break. So this is going to be a, a, pretty, a pretty quick series. Um, but part of, part of what this is, I don't want us to get lost kind of in um, some of the jargon that I've been using with these different catchphrases. Really, this is simply a series about Christian discipleship. How is the Christian to live life in a sinful world? How do we make sure that we are ordering our lives in a way that is God-honoring and in a way that is wisely uh, accorded to God's scriptures? So in that way, I think discipleship, you know, we often talk about discipleship kind of as this positive process. It's this process of studying God's word, of meeting with others for accountability, of committing yourself to a local church. There's a number of different avenues by which we are discipled. But discipleship also involves a negative task. We must learn how to deprogram, that is to expose, critique, and correct the pictures and the stories that we live by. And then to positively reprogram, that is to replace the old self and the old ideas that marked our former way of life with the ideas generated by scripture and the gospel. So I hope that this, this picture, it sounds a little bit abstract, but if you can just keep those simple kind of principles in mind, 
The Christian life is one of discipleship, which, what's a simple definition for discipleship? Anyone? Doing spiritual good to somebody else. That's right. And so as we think about our own lives, it's making sure that we are doing spiritual good by helping ourselves and helping others to follow Jesus. But again, I want us to help think in those two categories. Positively, that's what we're doing. But I, I, I want to put before you that inevitably there are various uh, things in the world around us that are also discipling us, except they're not discipling us to grow into maturity like Alex was saying. They're not discipling us to help us follow Jesus better. In fact, they're discipling us the exact opposite way. So part of the discipling task is both recognizing positively what we must do, but then also being able to kind of reprogram some of those other things by identifying them and then pulling them down. So to illustrate what I mean by the stories we live by, let me give you an example from my little sister and a poor little chump who was trying to be one of her suitors. I, I almost put the screenshot up on the screen because it was so laughable, but I figured even though I don't know this kid, I don't want to humiliate him in front of a, people, a bunch of people he doesn't know. So anyway, I'll just tell it to you. So the pictures and stories of romance movies, TikTok, Instagram, exert a heavy influence over young people. I'm a huge fan of a good rom-com. But the problem is, is that those movies do not depict real life, okay? So this boy, and my sister's still in high school, if that gives you a little bit more context, they're, they're not like in their 20s, which is at least helpful. Um, so this boy, he had seen something on social media about how to ask a girl out. It goes like this. The boy sends a text message or a DM to the girl, and he says, quick question. How would you tell someone that you really, how would you tell someone that you really like that you like them? And if the girl plays along, which to be clear, my sister did not, then they respond how they would do so, and then the boy proceeds to tell the girl that he likes them in that way. It literally makes me want to vomit. It's the worst <laughs> thing ever. <laughs> this poor chap thought it would be a good scheme, but it was so divorced from reality. He had been shaped by social media to think that this was an acceptable way to engage in conversation with a sweet little girl like my sister. This is just a silly example to illustrate that we are all in some form or fashion shaped by the stories we see lived out around us. But there is one story alone that we must labor to live by. And that is the story of being made a new creation in Christ Jesus where our will, our desires, our affections, our motivations, and our happiness is rooted in being in Christ Jesus. So we reject those things that are trying to form us and instead say, you know what? I'm a new creation in Christ if I've placed my faith in him. And that reorients everything about how I live. So we're going to start this series off not by talking about any of the specific topics that you see there on your handout, but by establishing the framework for combating the worldly ideas and pictures and stories that we live by. So to do this, we're going to spend some time in Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church. So if you want to turn with me to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that's where we're going to camp out for, um, for a little bit. Bless you. So as you turn there, let me uh, briefly catch you up on the context. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So there were a plethora of sinful issues that were affecting uh, the church of Corinth. 
they had gotten themselves wrapped up in some, some pretty crazy things. Um, a son was sleeping with his stepmother and the church was silent about it. People were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Members were filing lawsuits against one another without first airing out their grievances to one another. And they were even doubting the resurrection uh, from the dead. Uh, just to name a few, there was even more issues that were present in the Corinthian church. So when Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, if you ever read the book of 1 Corinthians, you see that it seems like just a constant, Paul is moving from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, instructing them on uh, what they're doing wrong and how they are to uh, reorder their lives. We learn from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, that the majority of their fellowship, by God's grace, was repentant. They turned from their evil ways because they were truly grieved over their sin. And so Paul's second letter to the church of Corinth seems a bit more hopeful. It seems like Paul is encouraged and he's just following up on a few things. But in chapter 10, Paul shifts his tone from commendation, that is just an encouragement to them, back to frustration and sadness, because it seems like some in the church of Corinth had, um, didn't think that he was a, a true apostle or that he was too weak. You can see from our text here in verse 10, or excuse me, chapter 10, verse 1, um, that Paul says uh, they were claiming that Paul was bold over letter, but not to their faces. So Paul kind of joking there in verse 1 says, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. If you look down to verse 10, it says, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. It seems like kind of a, a petty uh, insult. They're saying that his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. They're essentially saying that Paul is like that curmudgeon on Twitter or Facebook or whatever who lobs grenades at people from behind a screen, but would never say those things face to face with someone. But greater context helps us to see that some of these dissenters thought Paul was weak because he didn't use the type of powerful rhetoric that other Greek speechwriters and rhetoricians would use. They said that his language was too simple. You can see there that in verse 1, Paul appeals to the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, first and foremost. And he even says in, um, in 1 Corinthians um, that their message was not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ so as to demonstrate the power of God. So as we see here, he claims that he doesn't want to show boldness in person because that would mean that he would publicly kind of humiliate them. And he didn't want to come with lofty speech, but simply to proclaim Christ and him crucified to show that the power of what he's saying, it doesn't rest in the, the prowess of what he's saying, but in the content and in the very power of God. But look now at verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 10. It says that though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. So though Paul and the other apostles live in the flesh, that is, that they live as humans, they do not wage war according to the flesh. Rather than employ the methods of the world to correct sinful behavior or to try to logically persuade the Corinthians to live in a certain way, Paul says that they destroy strongholds and arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God through taking their thoughts captive 
by divine power. The battle we are engaged in in this life is not only of flesh and blood, it's also intensely spiritual. As such, we can't assume that we'll be able to look within to win this war. That is to say that we can't just say, live your own truth, and then you'll be able to win this war. As Paul says to the Galatians, it's foolish to begin by the Spirit and then to try to perfect yourself by the flesh. What he's simply saying there is that anytime we are trying to add extra works to our life in order to justify ourselves or to present ourselves as pure before God or before others, that means that we are, we're putting aside the work of the Holy Spirit in truly saving us and sanctifying us and glorifying us in the end. So I want us to spend the rest of our time briefly unpacking verse 5. Specifically, I want us to think about those three phrases. You can see them there on your handout. Destroy arguments, take every thought captive, and obey Christ. Now, entitling this talk, Take Every Thought Captive, it's a little bit of a misnomer because that appears to be an imperative. When I don't think that phrase, take every thought captive, is actually an imperative. What, what's an imperative? A command. That's right. So I don't think this is actually a, a command. Rather than a command to take every thought captive, Paul is simply saying a statement of fact that rather than employ worldly strategies to respond to his accusers, Paul is allowing God's word to destroy and reinterpret their own notions about God and about the world that he has created for them to inhabit. So, in a sense, he's hearing that he's in water and listening to what God says about how the water is either safe or harmful. So, let me, let me unpack that a little bit. I think here what Paul is saying is that rather than employing these worldly strategies to say, okay, this is what I believe to be true about the world, or even what these people are saying about me, what they're trying to say is true about me, well, now I am going to expose that to what God says, and then the, the divine power of God's word is actually going to destroy those arguments if they're not of God. And in that way, they're brought into obedience of Christ. So as we mentioned earlier, I think Paul is deprogramming. Again, it's that, it's that negative task of discipleship. He is exposing, critiquing, and correcting the pictures and the stories that the Corinthians live by. And then he is reprogramming them by exposing them to the divine power of God's word. So the take every thought captive is not Paul saying he's taking captive his own thoughts in order to obey Christ, as this verse is often applied, but rather that God's word, when rightly applied, takes captive the godless thoughts of others and of the world. And that's really, in a sense, the whole point of this series. Again, this is a little bit of tougher sledding to kind of set the framework for it and then to apply that to some of these other topics. So how do we unleash the divine power of God on the godless thoughts, habits, practices, values, and even the imaginations of this world and of our own lives? How do we recognize that this world is trying to disciple us? It's trying to teach us certain things about what is true and then to unleash the divine power of God's word upon those things to bring them down. Again, because this is a spiritual war. Satan is going to try to tempt us to believe that these ideas of what we think the good life is 
or of what we deserve or of any way that we would order our lives, if it's not what God's word teaches, then it's a false way of living. We have to order our lives solely according to these scriptures. You are being discipled every day, whether it's your phone discipling you, your social club, the people at your work, or even your own voice. Like the two young fish, you're swimming along in the waters of a culture. And unless you ask that question, what the heck is water? You may not realize it. Pretend that Paul hears the older fish swimming in the opposite direction saying, hey, boys and girls, how's the water? So let's take that first phrase there, destroy arguments. Look back at verses three to five again. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This battle that we are engaged in requires not some type of physical or emotional power. It requires, verse 4, divine power. So what is divine power? Flip a few books to the right to Ephesians chapter 3 with me. Paul is saying that we need this divine power in order to destroy these arguments of the world. And so we're left to ask the question, what is this divine power? And just a quick note on even your own Bible reading. Oftentimes, one of the best ways to interpret Scripture is to use Scripture. (laughs) So what I mean by that is if you pick up on something in the Scriptures and you're just like, I don't know what that means, or I wonder what Paul means by saying divine power here in 2 Corinthians 10. If you Google on your phone or you use the Bible app and just do like a word search for divine power, well, then maybe you can find that in other passages of Scripture, and then you'll be able to better understand by bringing those things together. So it's just a good practice that uh, as you read your Bibles, read inquisitively, be asking questions about the text, but then try to go to other pieces of Scripture to understand some of what's being said there. So Paul in Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14 He's praying for the Ephesian church, and he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through your spirit in your inner being, through his spirit, excuse me, that is through God's spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of God, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What do you notice about this power that Paul speaks of here to the church in Ephesus? What comes immediately after in verse 16, him saying, may he grant you to be strengthened with power. Through what? 
Say it louder for those in the back. The Spirit, that's God's Holy Spirit who imparts this power. That's Paul saying that if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit who now indwells you has imparted you with divine power. And then in verse 20, we see that God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. There we see that this power, it's not only something that is just kind of there, but it's something that God is using in us to preserve us to the end and to literally work inside of us. And so if you flip back to 2 Corinthians, we can understand that some of what Paul is saying here and that this power to destroy strongholds is this power of the Spirit that gives us discernment. It helps us to know how the world is teaching us certain things and how from the scriptures we might be able to respond to those things. Mere intellect, willpower, or discipline will not bring about the destruction of the deeply rooted errors in our mind. So what we are not trying to do in this series is to simply give you disciplines or ideas about how to combat the worldly truths that would vie for your affection or your attention. Our aim is to remind you that it requires the divine power of God. And this process begins by taking every thought captive, which is the second of those three phrases we're considering from verse 5. Take every thought captive. So how can we apply this verse? How can we say to God, destroy in my mind any thoughts that are contrary to your will or to the teaching of your word? How can we do that? Well, I want us to consider three ways. The first, lay yourself bare before the Holy Spirit. This is where it gets practical. Two, scrutinize or audit your thoughts according to Scripture. And then third, invite others who are unlike you into your life. So again, this is, this is where it gets practical. We've been talking a lot in the abstract about what it means to kind of disciple ourselves in the way of Scripture and to disciple ourselves out of the ways of the world. And then now, this is one of those, these are three ways that we can do this. So the first, lay yourself bare before the Holy Spirit. We must pray often as David does in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a, that's a terrifying prayer to pray. Write, write that down, Psalm 139, and look back at it later this week or sometime tonight or tomorrow and pray that prayer that David prays. To go before God, Psalm 139, to go before God and to say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's anything grievous in me. I don't know about y'all, but I get terrified at the thought of just people I love or people that I respect or people in authority over me finding out about grievous things that I've done or sinful things that I've done. But what's clear is that even though those are tangible people that we feel like we're somehow more accountable to them because we can actually see them and we can feel them, it's a much more frightening and terrifying thing to be held accountable before the living God the one who sees all things. 
the one who knows all things, the one who hears all things, the one who knows every single one of our thoughts. And so to go before the Lord and say, test me, try me, see if there is anything grievous before me. We can trust that the Lord will do his sanctifying work. That's part of the divine power of the Holy Spirit in us. It's not just for all of these cool things that we get to do. It's actually also for the sake of revealing our sin. But again, not to make us doubt our salvation, but to rest assured that if we are united in Christ, that spirit is helping us to identify the sin and then to work against that sin. God will reveal sinful thoughts and notions about the world that you carry. So even just as a practical way, we can pray to the Lord, reveal the ideas that I have about how my life should be or what sorts of things I should value or anything that's contrary to your will, O God, and convict me of it. Bring about a weightiness where I recognize that these things are not righteous or they're not proceeding from faith so that we can then be aware of those waters that we're swimming in and seek to proactively turn to God's word. Second, audit your thoughts according to scripture. Corey, what does it mean to audit something? Put them on the spot to reference it. Yeah, so when you're auditing something, you're literally just, you're referencing it. You're looking, you're looking it over, you're examining it to see if there's air. And so we are to audit ourselves, we're to audit our lives according to the scriptures. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's also a terrifying verse. It's like literally telling you that if you spend more time in the scriptures, it will pierce you. It will open up and reveal ways that you are living your life contrary to God. This word audits us. It looks over us, it sees all of our imperfections, and it exposes those. And it's a bit of a painful process, but it ultimately helps us cultivate greater union and greater intimacy with God, because then we're living our lives in obedience to him. Regularly communing with God's word will naturally expose the godless thoughts and habits and practices that we have. Thinking that you can imbibe God's word without reading it is a bit like trying to hear music from earbuds that are near you but aren't in your ears. It'd be like if I had an iPhone sitting down here with some earbuds plugged into it and I was playing some song that's literally sitting on the ground. I can't hear at all what it's saying. Even if I step close to it, I'm not going to be able to hear it. Even if I get down on one knee and like try to lean close, I might be able to hear a little bit of the beats, but I'm not going to be able to understand or comprehend what's going on. No, I'm going to have to pick it up. I'm going to have to grab those earbuds, and I'm going to have to literally stick them in my ear to audibly hear that. 
That's what we have to do to God's word. We can't assume that we can just kind of come near God's word or that we'll experience God's word just by simply being in nature. That's one of the lies of mysticism, that you can understand God and understand how to be saved just by simply being in nature or by doing the various hobbies that you like to enjoy. And the scriptures are clear that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We have to audibly hear and see God's word. And so don't be fooled that just because you do spiritual things or just because you are in and around God's word, that you're going to be conformed to the image of God, as we talked about in Romans 12. No, we have to pick up the Bible and to insert it so that we can grow to know it and to love God. Let me give you an example of how we can put the earbuds of God's word in to reprogram our faulty thoughts. So maybe you've had a bad experience with church or maybe you've had a bad experience with religion. Paul says in Romans 8 that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you think, hey, there's no condemnation for me, so why do I need to be involved in a church? It's no big deal if I just do Christianity apart from the church. After all, I still have my Bible and I have my own personal faith. The church is a people, not a place, right? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, this is a perceived notion about what is right based on experience and based on stories that we've told ourselves. And we can continue to live our lives according to this notion that we believe is true. And the world will tell you that if you believe something long enough to be true, well, then by goodness, it's true, right? But let's contrast that with what God's word says. It says that when we are united to Christ, we are also united to others in the faith, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. It says that we are commanded to regularly gather with the local church body, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. It says that the church is the household of God. It is a pillar and a buttress for the truth. So how can we be a part of the household of God and to be joined to this literal buttress that is a fortress that holds the truth if we divorce ourselves from it. The church is the instrument through which God divinely gives encouragement and grace. 1 Thessalonians 5.11. When we cut ourselves off from that, we're literally saying, oh goodness, I have this stint in my heart that is keeping the blood flowing through it. I'm just going to reach in and rip that stint out. Well, you're just going to be led to a massive heart attack. God's word is literally saying that he has designed the church as a means by which we continue to grow in God's grace. Now, we take that perceived notion of what we believe to be true about the church, but then we put in the earbuds of God's word, and then we reorient that notion, not based on what feels right, but according to what God's word says. You could think about someone who feels despondent, someone who feels maybe depressed. They struggle to find hope. Those feelings are very real. Those are feelings that don't just go away with the snap of a finger. Those are feelings that don't go away if you just muster up enough faith. Those are just the effects of living life in a fallen world. 
And yet we can also take the truth of Joshua 1.5, that I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we have this notion that, okay, there's no hope in this life. Because I don't feel like God is near, that means he probably isn't near. And we can instead say, wait a minute. My notion about what is true, that God is not near, actually, it doesn't, it doesn't comport with the fact that the scriptures say that I will never leave you nor forsake you. So now we put the earbuds of scripture in. We take that truth, a certainty, a promise of God's word, and then now we reorient our perspective about those things. And again, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that that means that all of a sudden you're not going to be depressed anymore. You're not going to feel those feelings of discouragement. But I do mean that God has given us certainty in his word. He gives us promises of assurance that are true, just like that song we sang. There's a reason that the hymnist, the, the, the hymn writer who wrote that song, I don't know if hymnist is even a word now that I'm saying it out loud, but there's a reason that that hymn writer wanted God's promises to come to pass. That implies that, God, I know these things that you've said about your word are true, and yet my lived experience doesn't feel like those things are true. So bring your promises to pass. And yet, what is he clinging to? He's clinging to those promises of God. Again, this practice of auditing our lives according to Scripture is to take any thought, anything that we believe about the world or what we believe to be wrong about God, these lofty opinions that are waging war uh, against the knowledge of God, and then we're taking them in accord to what Scripture actually says and then reorienting those things. God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, as Psalm 119, 105 says. It is the only thing that will correctly show us the way. It corrects, it trains, and teaches us so that we are equipped for every good work, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says. Third, invite others into your life. Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. The wisdom of this proverb is clear. Isolating yourself from those who will hold you accountable to the truths of God's word means that you are seeking your own desire. Even if you're intentionally thinking, oh, I just enjoy being alone and seeking my own, excuse me, even if you're not intentionally saying, oh, I just enjoy being alone and seeking my own desires, when you isolate yourself from others who will challenge you in the faith, that's exactly what you're doing. Ecclesiastes 4 verses 9 through 10 say, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. God has wired this world and the people in it to operate within community. And it's not just a design that has no end. No, its end is for our good. Praise God for his kindness in giving us others who, when we fall, have someone else to lift us up. You ever remember those old Life, Alot, uh, Life Alert commercials? Help, I've fallen and I can't get up. They have this little button they can press. Be the Life Alert button for another person. Be there whenever they fall. And be willing to swallow your own pride and ask for help from others. I think the times when we are most resistant to letting others um, into our lives are the times that we're often actually indulging our sin. 
We're afraid of others seeing it and challenging us, and so we withdraw. Resist that temptation and draw near to others. Ask them to help you. Now, the purpose of the destruction of the arguments is so that our thoughts are taken captive, but we must close by considering the fact that these thoughts are taken captive for a specific purpose. What is that purpose? Audit. What's the, what's the last phrase? To obey Christ. That's the purpose. To obey Christ. Once our thoughts are captive, because we have, through divine power, laid ourselves bare before the Holy Spirit, audited our thoughts by Scripture, and joined ourselves in friendship with others, our entire being will be brought into obedience with Christ. But there is an initial step of obedience that is absolutely central. Paul says in Romans 5.19, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. He's talking about Adam there. So through Adam's disobedience, all have been made disobedient. That is, everyone is a sinner. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then he goes on to say, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That is Jesus. So by Jesus's obedience, the many can be made righteous. My plea to you is to not trust in your own obedience or your own good works, but to confess that you are in a sinner, incapable of turning to God on your own and trusting in Christ's perfect obedience to be sufficient to save you. Again, this whole talk has been geared specifically toward Christians but if you're sitting there and you're just like, gosh, I don't, even, I don't even know how to obey. I don't know what this obedience means. There's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is, is that if you try to work out your own obedience by your own effort, that's insufficient. There's no amount of good works that we can do that will earn us favor before God. Because the scriptures teach that it is by grace alone that we are saved. That grace simply means a free gift that is given to us by God. But the good news is, is that there is one whose work is sufficient, one whose obedience is complete, one whose obedience on this earth was perfect, and whose obedience actually pleases God because that obedience was perfect. And that obedience, as we see in Philippians chapter 2, ultimately led this person to a cross where they gave of their life as a sacrifice for sins, that penalty that our sins deserved, death itself. This person was obedient even unto death on a cross, bearing upon himself that sin, bearing upon himself the wrath of God in the place of sinners, ultimately so that in his death and then after being raised from the dead three days later, anybody who turns to him that is, they say, I am insufficient on my own. My obedience is lacking. I can't do this on my own. I have to trust in Christ and his obedience alone. Well, scriptures say that, that you will be saved. For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God did raise him from the dead, declaring his victory over sin and death, that you will be saved. And it is ultimately that obedience, the obedience of Christ, that is necessary for us to internalize.
Because then, once we become Christians, that is, once we believe in the obedience of Christ as our only means of salvation, again, God sends his spirit into us, and then he enables us to obey God as he rightly desires. So I want us, as we go into these next several weeks, to be thinking about what it means to be found in full obedience before God. How do we work toward making sure that we are living lives that are in accord with the obedience of Scripture, that is God's own word, and in a way that we are denying the, world, the, the ways that the world would teach us? So flip real quick to Philippians 2, and then I promise we're done. Philippians chapter 2. We may not be perfect in this life, but we are called to obey. And so I hope that this series is going to help equip us to better obey. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We may not be able to fully comprehend how it is that we're instructed to do an action of obedience before God, but then also to simultaneously hold the truth that it is actually God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, the system's rigged. This is where we see the, the assurance, the sweet assurance and confidence that ultimately God is the one who, if we are saved, he's the one who's working out our salvation. He's the one who's sanctifying us. He's the one who's going to preserve us to the end. And ultimately, he's going to be the one who glorifies us. And yet the scriptures are also clear that we are to obey. We are to work out our faith with fear and trembling. So I want you to hold the confidence that God will complete you in the end. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But I also want you to know, just through these teachings, that we are to be active participants in that. We are to take those thoughts captive and to destroy them according to God's word so that we can obey Christ. Let's pray.